This is uh, Jason Gennaro from Breakwater Energy Partners. I'm uh, the Chief Executive Officer. Breakwater. Talk to me a little bit about what you do and how you're related in the oil company before we get into the big news, sir. Sure, absolutely. We'd be happy to do it. So, uh, Breakwater, we're, uh, we're probably the, the largest private water transfer and recycling uh, company. We're, we're focused on on Texas and uh, and New Mexico, so the Eagleford and the uh, the Permian Basin. So we do a lot in the water movement space, but we, we also do a lot in recycling. And we've done that since 2012, and we've been fortunate enough to to kind of grow and and recycle for a lot of customers on both sides of the of the basin, and and really refine that and and, and think about things a little differently, which led us to this most recent announcement. And that's why we're here today, uh, responding to the press release put out about your recent, is it, would it be called a new recycling facility, a new water recycling facility? What is the official terminology? And let's get into some of the meat and potatoes, some of the nuts and bolts about uh, this amazing innovation that's coming into the Permian Basin. Sure. It's a produced water recycling facility. It recycles produced water from... The oil and gas um, space, really, from the Permian Basin, and it was it, we really built it because we, we were recycling a lot for our customers, you know, on a kind of a small scale and individual level, uh, which is pretty common now across the industry. But we weren't able to really help them aggregate a lot of water. And so when you when you kind of take a step back, you know, the Permian Basin is obviously a very important basin for the oil and gas industry. It's now the largest basin in uh in the world it's larger than than the ones that you find now in saudi arabia but the thing that folks don't talk about as much is how much of a water producer it is and you know for you know for every barrel of of oil that's produced in the permian basin it produces two to three barrels of water so when you think about it the logistic exercise in the permian basin is is less of an oil logistic exercise and more of a water logistic exercise. And so when these when these wells are completed, they actually consume more than a barrel of water effectively for every barrel they produce, and then they produce two to three. The problem that you have is how to how to really marry the supply and demand, uh, because the reality is a lot of a lot of operators, you know, are producers, you know, at, you know at certain moments, and then consumers. Of water at other moments, and so it was really difficult for them individually to meet their own water requirements with their own produced water, um, and and they could do it partially, but they they oftentimes couldn't do it completely at, on a project by project level. And so as we saw this, we you know we took a step back and said, you know what, what really needs to be done is we need to build a really big commercial produced water recycle facility that aggregates water from a number of different operators all concurrently, all at the same time, and, and basically acts as an air traffic controller, moving water you know, from the folks who don't need it, who are just gonna waste it and put it down a saltwater disposal, uh, recycle it, store it, change its form into something that is productive, and then move it, you know, including the last mile to the folks that actually need it. So really serve as that nexus point to serve as that that kind of honest broker or good steward to, um, to to basically take that water and move it to the folks that actually need it 
you know, away from the folks that are they're looking to dispose of it um, in, in kind of a good stewardship sort of way. That's interesting. So it's first of all, it's stationary. It's not you know, it's not one. It's not a mobile type of a thing or temporary. This is this is something that is intended to have people come to you. And and like you said, air traffic controller. I was envisioning trucks coming in, you know, like an artery system, and, and dumping their water into a big pool. That's <laughs> what I was visioning. So, uh, how close am I to that being the reality of what it is? It, it actually, you know, we don't handle 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 trucks, although we we can. There are certainly a lot of trucks that move a lot of water across the basin. Um, but it, what, what we do, you know, a lot of these operators have their own produced water systems that, that, that really serve themselves. And, um, and they, they operate independently, um, but they don't tend to interact as much with, with their neighbors. So you might have two separate operators who have their own, you know, oper- you know their own acreage. And actually, so there are two or three or four. But they all might statistically balance their own water, meaning... They, you know, they move water throughout their system, which means that they can't use their, much of their water at many moments in time. But if you look at all of their schedules together, um, there's that opportunity. And so that's why we, we invested the effort in actually building this permanent facility, uh, building the storage capability, building the treatment capability um, so that we can kind of form that nexus point where water comes in so that we can move the water away from the folks who were looking to dispose of it to the folks that actually needed it uh, to complete their um, their operations. What size are we talking? So this is this one's the biggest in the Permian Basin. It is 250,000 barrels per day. So that's our that's our capacity and it lets us recycle a lot of water even in, even in third quarter which was not a stellar time for the Permian Basin we recycled 5 million barrels in the third quarter alone. How about geography-wise? How much space do you, is this going to take up? So we, we so we've we've built it, you know, pretty large. Uh, so it, it it's an eighty-acre site. Nice. So it's uh it's it's sizable. We have uh, you know, we have um, you know, obviously recycling operations there. We have buffer storage, and then we've built commercial treated water pits as well. And um and those pits are are there to store our recycled water. Um, so that we can aggregate it for customers who need it and then move it at scale to those customers who are completing their wells uh, when they need it um, so that they can actually get enough recycled water to, com- to complete these wells with 100%, up to 100% recycled water, which is not common at all. I mean, it's, it's not common to be able to, to access that much water when you need it because the reality is, uh, you know, the way things are done right now in uh in the permian basin is the, the the consumption of water when it's it's needed is very very substantial so for example right you know right now we're working with a customer who's doing you know a a completion that's requiring a hundred thousand barrels per day uh over over a period of time and that's just a lot of water it's it's very difficult to to accumulate and aggregate that much recycled water instantaneously, especially without storage. Um, and that's part of what we do is we form that nexus point so that we can aggregate a lot of water from a number of different operators. We can store it, we can prepare for that. So that lets us be able to be of service and help customers uh, save money by using a lot of recycled water. 
I have a dumb question, but uh, what, what do you do with the recycled water when it's done? Done. Well, we store it. Um, so the recycled water is stored um, in in recycled water pits, and we wait for folks to, to have a completion. And when they have a when when they have a completion, we work with them to store enough water for them. And uh, combined with their ability to kind of refresh, you know, refresh the pits, and then, and then we help them move last miles to, to actually become consumers of the water. So we have the we have productive use for it. We're basically using this industrial water, um, which would just be disposed of. We're you know we're we're upgrading it. Um, we're recycling it to uh, you know a much higher spec that will allow us to store it, and then we move it. Uh, you know, to, to those customers who require it so that they can use, you know, up to hundred percent recycled water for the completion of their wells. I would think that this would help satisfy a lot of companies, uh, missions and drives to be more environmentally conscious and, and green, if you will, does this technology and innovation, I guess, is it considered green or environmentally friendly? It, it absolutely, it absolutely is. There's a, there's a big, there's a big movement now in really across all industries, but, but especially in the oil and gas industry, uh, revolving around environmental and, and social governance. And um, so this kind of ESG, this green movement's really, you know, it's really investors saying, hey, you know, we, you know profits are, are great, that's important, but we also need to be the best stewards of our resources and, and the best stewards really of our, of our companies. Um, and the people who are, are kind of blessed enough to work with um, that we can be. And, um, and so a lot of, especially public companies uh, are reporting, you know, how, how they perform, you know, on these ESG metrics and, um, you know, things like, you know, methane emissions, things like water recycling are very important metrics towards that. The environment is an important metric. And, um, you know, and so, and so there are, those things that are reported and, and those those matter as it relates to institutional investors making making investments in um, in companies um, like oil and gas companies and so that's that's part of it and and so that's you know that's part of what we help folks do is really kind of create more on ramps and off ramps to to water so that we can create more opportunities to recycle water and most importantly distribute that recycled water for beneficial use. And that last mile, like so many different industries, is so important. If you don't have it, if you don't have that ability to distribute that last mile, um, you can't recycle very much because your pits will become full. And, you know, if there's nowhere for the water to go, you know, it has to go down hole. You must dispose of it because these wells produce so much water. So being able to create these mechanisms, these on-ramps and off-ramps to aggregate a lot of water and distribute a lot of water creates a lot of opportunity for you know, for companies to, to recycle a lot of water. And then, it's, you know, candidly, it's something that they want to do anyway, because, you know, A, it's more cost effective, um, but B, you know, it's the right, it's the right thing to do from an ESG perspective. It's rather interesting because a lot of times these interviews will go out on our, our radio platform. And so people listening, you know, they might not be so deep dived in on a lot of the day-to-day -day operations in oil and gas. So hearing about recycled water and the fact that the technology exists and the fact that, you know, this, this ESG environmental movement's going on, you know, somebody driving to soccer practice might look at their mom and dad and say, well, how's this not regulated or, you know, how's this not a law type of a thing? So 
you know, hearing the technology and, and, and knowing what the company's drives are and just the whole culture of way things are, what's your, you know, what's, what's your biggest obstacle? Is it uh, cost? Is it education? Is it regulation? You know, I mean, because something like this, like I said, you know, to the average person would seem like it would be law to use recycled water or recycle water. So uh, what are you finding out there that are your biggest barriers to entry, I guess, is kind of the question. Does that does that make sense without, I don't need to know your business model, but, you know, help some people out by helping us understand a little bit. You know, I think part of it, I think it's a great question. I think part of it, you know, is is awareness and you know honestly part of it is is being able to create um opportunities for for companies to 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 do it because you know when 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 operators are 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 operating of course they they want to you know they they, they're kind of managing their own network if they if you will their own um assets their own um land and mineral rights and that sort of thing it's hard for them to think you know, more holistically about, you know, all of those who surround them uh, as well. Um, and, and, and that's part of what was, was challenging in the past. And, and the reality is, you know, a lot of times operators are, are operating in areas where there, there may not be um, a lot of other operators. And so there, there is, you know, there is a more limited system, um, limited ways to to kind of get things done and, and be efficient because the reality is, I mean, a lot of operators, when you look at them in a, in a vacuum, you know, you know, are consumers of water at certain moments and producers at other moments and, and oftentimes not both at the same time, unless you have a really, really big footprint. But if you look at it holistically amongst a number of folks in, in a number of areas where there are concentrations of, of operators who are all, you know, drilling and completing wells, at the same time, when you look at that statistical water balancing, there is opportunity to be collaborative. There is opportunity to share. And that's why we call this collaborative recycling. And so part of it is is really having kind of, you know, folks that are willing to make the investment and, and kind of and be trusted stewards of it. Like they're able to recycle water to a high standard. They're able to store it, um, build these facilities the right way. Um, they're, they're able to be reliable. Um, they're able to distribute, help folks distribute that water, you know, last mile because there is is that that process to get it to the last mile to get it to the ultimate completion job. Those are those are things, and you know, and, and the data is very significant too. We got 10 million data points that are generated already on this on this one location because we're we're constantly managing water flows, and um, and there's a lot that's that's involved in it. So part of it, you know, really from our standpoint is is kind of um, you know regionally educating um, and, and encouraging, you know, our partners, our customers, you know, to trust us and work with us as stewards and, uh, and find areas where, where these make sense. And that's, that's a big part of what we're doing. About six years ago, somebody I trust very much in the oil and gas and economic world told me that about 70% of the uh, America's shale play is going to be out of the Permian over the next 30 years. And uh, that's how big it is and vast it is and how much activity there is down there. Um, and I, I always paid attention to that a little bit. So when, when I hear you talk about, you know, the, the Permian, the prolific Permian, which I hear a lot of people use that alliteration term. You didn't, but I hear a lot of people say that. Uh, it, it reinforces those, those studies and, and those, you know, anecdotal stories I've heard from people I trust that the Permian is... Is, is going to be a kind of a core 
for shale play USA over the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, you've got some geographical neighbors with the Eagleford and maybe even the Scoob Stack, if you want to call that, and Haynesville. Are, are you looking at, uh, and you're based out of Houston, if my, if my notes are correct, so are you looking at any other shale plays or are you, you know, is, is the geographic location close enough so maybe you can reach down into an Eagleford or something like that? Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what your future aspiration plans are because, you know, 80 acres and, uh, you know, a big facility like that, obviously you guys, you guys have some, uh, have some, some dreams going, which is good. I mean, it's great, great question. You know, you know, we definitely operate in, in, in the Eagleford. We operate in other, you know, in, in other basins. Um, you know, we, but part of this is it was around kind of proving the concept um, and proving the, the the prototype, if you will. Um, and it's easier to prove. It was easier for us, um, and, and probably more logical, to prove the concept where you have you know more 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 operators, more well completions that happen all at the same time. Because uh, there's just more opportunities to access, you know, you know, a lot of produced water. The the Permian Basin produces a lot of water per barrel um, than, you know, compared to really all other basins. Um, and then secondly, it consumes a lot of water too because there's just a lot of activity. Like you said, there's, you know, it's more than half, more than fifty percent of all rigs, um, you know, in in the in the United States are in the Permian Basin. So there's just a great concentration of activity, which is why it makes sense, um, you know, to look to the Permian to, to build this, this pilot site, this, this prototype and, and really prove the concept, um, because it really, it really hinges on collaboration. It hinges on what we call statistical water balancing, recognizing that everyone's water schedule is, is going to be different. And when you, you know, when you combine them together, those distributions, those timing distributions start to normalize a little bit and creates opportunities to be the beneficial distributor um, of water. And, 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 and even more, it allows um, you know, operators to aggregate enough recycled water to do you know, the majority of their completions in certain areas in these areas that we operate in, you know, with recycled water. Whereas if they didn't have access to everyone else's water at, at each instantaneous moment in time, you know, they'd be limited, you know, in the amount of, of water they can recycle, you know, you know, they'd be limited just the, to their own water. So, so in, in order to prove the concept, it made sense for us to focus where there was a lot of activity, where there was you know, significant, you know, statistical imbalances and these, these sites basically serve to help create, to, to mitigate or flatten those those curves, if you will, and, and really serve as kind of the good, good, you know, good shepherd or good steward to help get recycled water to the most beneficial place at the right time. Did you mention where it is located, by the way? I didn't write that in my notes. Where's this uh, unit going to be located, this facility? Yeah, we've already built it. Um, it's It's been operational uh, for you know, I, I guess six months or so, and um, and, it, and it's located in between Howard and and Martin County, uh, in, in the Permian Basin, and in, in what's known as the Midland Basin side of the Permian Basin. Okay, yeah, is um, that's a big spring area. 
Yes, sir. It's, it's, it's called the Big Spring Recycling System. Oh, okay. And it, and it is located um, really uh, due west of, uh, of Big Spring, if you will. Uh, right on the right on the Martin County border, and it and it really serves those two counties. Tell you the one thing that shocked me was the town of I think it's called Butler, where cell phone service doesn't work if you're a Verizon customer. Found that one out the hard way. That's <laughs> that's, that's interesting when you're using Verizon service for GPS. <laughs> you gotta and you gotta make a turn, and you realize, oh boy, old school maps would come in handy right now. So for sure, you're relegated to pulling into the gas station and asking for directions. You don't do that as much today. And they and they ask, oh, you got Verizon, and like that's what they all say because they know exactly what's going on. It's I found it comical. I figured it was some kind of Hatfield McCoy story that. Uh, there's a reason for it. You know, that's usually how things work when you get just little idiosyncrasies like that. Uh, anywho, um, well, so it's been in operation for six months. What do you, uh, how's it going then as far as, you know, taking a step back, things that uh, surprised you, maybe things that, uh, you, you know, you got to, you know, do a little differently, just uh, kind of the state of the union, if you will. State of the recycled water. Sure. You know, it's going, you know, it's going what? Well, in the in the third quarter alone, we've recycled uh, around uh, five five million barrels, which is which is quite a bit. Um, we have three operators who are, who are working with this all at the same time uh, to start out with um, at the facility, and uh, it's going it's going quite well. I mean, we've been able to, you know, we've been very pleased with, um, you know, how we we've, we've been able to uh, to perform, if you will, you know, through the third quarter, which is you know still during the pandemic, still a tough time. You know, for you know, for the Permian Basin overall, and we've been pleased to be able to recycle a lot of water and serve a lot of customers, and and they seem very happy with it, and we're grateful for the opportunity, and look forward to doing it more. Kind of wrapping up here, taking a look at Jason Gennaro, Breakwater Energy, and actually, I think there's another word after Breakwater Energy, isn't there? Breakwater Energy Partners. So I yes, apologize. Uh, look at me getting all casual here as I get uh, the interview down. My tie's already off, just so you know. So I'm really, it's, it's five o'clock somewhere here at 10 o'clock in the morning, I guess. But uh, anyway, that's, that's a bad joke. Okay, let's, uh, I did want to ask you, as we kind of enter into 2021, things have changed, you know, from, from the COVID side, you know, last year before COVID happened, actually 2019, you had companies like Whiting and Chesapeake, they were already laying off people. And so the energy industry was getting hit with the ESG movement uh, and the 16-year-old climate activist and that whole deal before COVID. So th this was a new issue, problem, that sort of thing that was very real. And to me, the thing that we really ramped up over the last five years, specifically in the last year and a half, and it's actually a big part of our marketing kit this year is hope, inclusion, awareness, and service. And we're really focusing on the inclusion part because there is everybody uses energy every day. So everybody needs to be aware of things that are going on with the different forms of energy and how it's being utilized and how it really there is such a net positive uh, when it comes to that. So, uh, but my question to you is, do you think, you know, words like hope and inclusion and service and awareness, do you think that they will have value in 2021? 
You know, I really, I, I, I really do. Um, you know, I think, you know, you know, I think if, if, we're, if we're fortunate enough to be leaders really in, in, in any industry um, or any, you know, any part of government or any part of, uh, of even your community, you know, it, it's really an opportunity to be a good, good steward of, of those resources, whatever position or resources that you have, it's, it's important to be a good, good steward. And, you know, I think to be a good steward, it's, it's, it's really about making people's lives better around you. It's, it's being, you know, a, 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 a good, um, steward of, of, of those resources, be it money or time or position. And I think there's an opportunity to think broadly and have those, those conversations. And, you know, some of what, what we're doing, we're, we're trying to work with, you know, our customers, you know, to try to try to encourage them to think broader and, and create opportunities for them, you know, to think more broadly than just what they do in a, sp- a specific area. And then also, you know, try to do things that are, that are unique and, and provides everybody around us to, to be part of something that we, that we believe in. Um, that's, you know, cost effective. We've got to do that, but, but it's also, it's also something that's kind of the right side of history. And I think, you know, if we're blessed to be enough, blessed enough to be a leader in any, in any facet of life, um, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, you know, is this going to make a difference, you know, over time? And what are, what are little things that we can do today that's going to make a difference, uh, you know, in people's lives and the environment, you know, and, 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 and could be something that's bigger than, than ourselves. Um, because ultimately, you know, everybody wants to work on those great projects that are bigger than themselves that, that ultimately have positive influence on folks around us and in our community. And, um, you know, that's part of what we do and be it in a small way or sometimes bigger ways. And, and I think, you know, I think the industry is the same way. I think that there's a, and I just want to validate and, and just kind of extend with what you're talking about a little bit. I kind of interpret it as there's a little bit of an int- intangible value shift that's happening here. And what I mean by that is I've got, you know, I, for so long, the media has lived in the intangible value marketplace where, you know, we were selling advertising and, and, you know, exposure. And as Rupert Murdoch used to say, we sell eyeballs. That's what we give you is eyeballs. And, you know, there's a lot of truth behind that. And that's really just an intangible thing. And it's like, oh, my eyeballs make more money than this, these eyeballs and that sort of thing. Or ears if you're in the radio business or whatever it might be. So there's, in, I remember when, I, when, when we hired a uh, former uh, auto sales guy and he did service. And after the first day, he came and he said, he goes, he goes when I sold tires, you could feel and touch a tire. He goes, selling advertising, that's really hard to sell because it's intangible. And that was kind of the first time I understood the difference between the two. And there was another time where we hired an engineer, terrible sales guy, but he came back and showed us a, a matrix chart, which if you go more than 250 miles, rent a car. And then so he just he showed us the wear and tear of vehicles and oil changes and costs and all this other stuff to where, anyway, he was very good with the linear thinking, but the abstract thinking, not so much. So I think where I'm going with this is, is that I think there's a shift in the intangible perception when it comes to value, because the ESG movement is real. And that is an intangible quality that is being put on banks and investors in terms of whether they're going to give you money or not. 
So, you know, the industrial forest, which we're putting our efforts towards in 2021, is a big part of that push. Seeing what you're doing with recycled water, I'm looking at that as that shift of the intangible value, where I think the awareness and the education is going to make what service you have a lot more valuable than somebody who's not offering that intangible value. I hope that made sense. It was a really long way to explain what I was talking about, but I think that the tires versus advertising and marketing helped a little bit. Were you following me at all, or did you hang up? No, I, 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 I was, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And you know, it's interesting because when I when I was in business school and finishing business school in in the early early 2000s, uh, one of the things that business school taught you was the only thing that mattered was was profit. Um, you know, they, they 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 paid lip service. I feel like to other stuff, um, but th they put a, a tremendous amount of emphasis on profit and efficiency, which leads to, to higher profits. And the reason why is, is they would say, Hey, if you, you know, if you do more than what, it, what the, you know, the minimum standards of law or, or human resources or whatnot, if you do too much more and it costs you more, um, you know, uh, your competitor might not and will have a lower, you know, a lower cost of doing business and, and they will beat you. Um, I think things have changed, and I think the ESG movement is a very, very important movement, um, whereby board of directors are, are telling, you know, chief executive officers and, and in the large institutional institutional investors like pension funds and universities and state governments are telling CEOs that they they need to think about more than just profit. And don't get me wrong, we we, we must make a profit. If we don't, we can't. You know, we can't pay the bills. We can't keep the lights on. We can't, you know, create jobs. You know, profit is very important, but it's not the only thing. I mean, and and it <clears throat> it matters to work on something that is that is bigger than just profit. And 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 sometimes that's just on a project level in terms of how we we treat people and how we work with people internally. Part of that's creating opportunities for for folks, um, you know, to work on stuff that's bigger than themselves. And some of that is working on projects that are, that are bigger than, than ourselves as well. And, and sometimes that's taking risk that, um, you know, that something will come together and, you know, like for example, this recycle set, this first in kind recycle set that is bigger than ourselves and um, can create opportunities for folks to recycle a lot of water, save money, which is great, but, but also creates opportunity to do something that would be impossible in the absence of a company taking the risk to do it. And, um, you know, I think, I think part of that is being driven by, you know, the ESG movement, um, which is basically saying, look, you know, CEOs, I want you to make money. You must make money in order to, to do well, but you also need to take into consideration other, other ways to be good stewards to your environment, other ways to give, folks opportunities and and doing the right thing and if you do those things i'm going to give you more credit than guys who don't do that and um and that's and that's part of i think the direction that we're going i think that's part of what institutional investors are asking for and and i think that's going to continue and and i think it's a it's a good thing how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about what you have going on and 
with the uh, is produced recycled water that you've got uh, the well, it's kind of what we're talking about, but you do other stuff too. So what what services do you offer and how can people get in touch with you to utilize those services? For sure. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, you know, we, uh, we're easy to get a hold of, you know, breakwaterenergy.com. Uh, you can get a hold of anybody on our, our, our team. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's our, our services there on the website. We offer a lot, really total, total integrated solutions across the entire water supply chain. And, uh, we work with uh, our customers to, um, you know, to, to help them, you know, do what they need to do as far as, you know, completions, you know, especially in the Permian Basin. And that's what, that's what we work on. But, but we try to do things, as you can tell, a little differently and um, create more opportunities for, for, you know, our folks and, and for our customers along the way. And that's a, that's a big part of it. 